bow your heads in prayer, please. Most gracious Heavenly Father, first we thank you for this new day, for the sunshine, for the prospect of warmer weather, and for the beauty of your creation. And Lord, this is the season that if ever there was a doubt with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no question but what you are truly our God, and we thank you. Lord, be with us this day, be with us this week. Bless this class, bless this church, bless this nation. Be with all who serve to try to make it a better place. And Lord, as we go forward, we have those amongst us who have issues, and we would just pray that, that first, these folks can find peace, and secondly, they can find healing. Lord, please keep us all safe, keep us healthy, keep us happy, and in the uh, words of uh, Willie Nelson, thank you for helping us to wake up not dead again today. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <And> go balls. <laughs> It's hard to follow that. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. It's a good thing you got here early. You get a seat. Yeah, you have to come sit in the front now. Thought we're all the only seats left are in the front. They must not have been expecting very many people today. They must have thought you were on spring break or something, like you get spring break. More likely to get broken than Yeah. So good morning. So we have been, the last several weeks, we are in week four of our sojourn through the book of Ephesians, and we are in chapter four today, and do a really quick review, just because there's a shift today, and we're still running our picture here. Uh, this is supposed to remind us of the sort of wonder uh, that Paul is wrapped up in, particularly in the first three chapters. But we want to be sure that everything that follows um, is still in light of everything that Paul has said in the first three chapters. So. I want to keep the picture there because it's easy once you start moving to chapter 4 uh, because it, it moves from the more visionary, deeply theological, it moves to sort of more what we might call moral exhortation. And it's really easy to forget what Paul thinks all that's grounded in. Uh, it's all grounded in the stuff that he's talked about in the first three chapters. And if you don't remember that, if you just start reading in chapter 4, 
It just sounds like Paul telling people how to live. But it's in light of what God has done. So let's just quickly remind ourselves what's happened in those first three chapters. So in the first chapter, uh, Paul begins with this ginormous long sentence, right, where he is just completely overcome uh, in chapter one, where he's, he's offering that we have to, to bless this God who has done this amazing thing in Christ that's just breathtaking. Um, and then it moves us, this sort of this blessing and thanksgiving, and then he moves into a prayer at the end of chapter one for the recipients of this letter that they would somehow get, like he, caught up in and somehow, you want to say, grasp this vision, but more like, be grasped by this vision. Right? It's, it's too big to grasp. But can you get caught up in it? What God has done in Christ. And so that, that's where he starts. And then he moves, in what we call the second chapter, um, to talk about what we call the sort of grace and peace. The first half of chapter 2 is about this very simple, in some ways, simple to us who've heard it, straightforward to us, but still full of wonder that God's grace has met us in Christ. It's not through our, it's what all of us have heard most of our lives, that it's not through anything we have done, but it's God's grace has met us in Christ. And this is our glory, that God has acted on our behalf. And then he moves in the second part of chapter 2 to talk about that Christ is our peace. It's in Christ that peace understood as wholeness, that it's in Christ that we are made whole. And here he means we are made whole. doesn't mean just me made whole as an individual, but he's talking about his whole audience, which is who are Jew and Gentile, has made them whole, made them one. And this is where he has that famous passage where he talks about that in Christ, God has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and out of two created one new humanity. Um, and this is, this is the peace. The, Christ is our peace. This, God has made us one new humanity. And then in chapter 3, he, he starts a prayer and then interrupts himself for about 14 verses uh, to, to sort of in parenthetical fashion say, and oh, by the way, um, this is what God has set me apart to be a steward of, this mystery, this mystery that God, that was from the beginning of the foundations of the world, that God always intended to create one new humanity, that no matter how humanity had divided itself, that in Christ God had always designed to, out of all of that, create one new humanity. And he had become the steward of this, particularly to the Gentiles. And then when he finally gets to the end of chapter 3, he finally offers the prayer that he was starting at the beginning of chapter 3. And so here, He's praying that they might 
somehow be drawn in to the wisdom and knowledge that this is, this is so, this is what God has done, this marvelous thing in creating one new humanity. Now from chapter four on, if you had to sort of name it, just you know, in a few words, you might say, given that all this is the case, given that God has made us one new humanity, then he starts off what we call chapter four. Again, it was a letter, it didn't have chapters. It starts off with the word, therefore. Right. So given all of that, Therefore, what does he say in the first verse? Therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you, beg you, I beg you. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Messes up. Wants to talk to you. Paper doesn't talk. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I can't find chapter four. Yeah. Try. We'll pause. It's okay. okay. It's all right. It's making me feel very unchristian. No, it's Technology. okay. We're going to get to the part where I get to the part, Linda, in chapter 4 it says, Be angry but sin not. So it's okay. Hey, Phil, it's can you good. start over? Yeah. It's all right. This is perfect. This is what chapter 4 is about. So it's all good. No different than a train. Yeah, sometimes it's a train. But we don't really get upset at trains because like, they're just trains, right? It's people that bug us. Right? So this is perfect. Did I pay you for that? <laughs> no, really, I mean, it's okay. You'll, as we continue through chapter 4, you'll see why that was just perfect. I'm on verse 1. Good. As are we. So we're all together. Very good. So, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison. It's easy to forget that. Um, I'm not sure if I'd been in prison, I would have been so rapturously caught up in what God had done. Um, but Paul is, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beg you, admonish you, to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, and the calling is not like your individual, he's not talking about your job, that kind of calling, your vocation. He's talking about our, our vocation as the people of God, as the church, to be what God has made us, one new humanity. That's what he's begging us. I'm begging you, right, to live a life worthy of that calling. God has made you one new humanity, so live like one humanity. That's what he's saying. And he's begging. He's, I'm begging you to do that. 
How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Right? Just, just take those four. Right? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Those are things that if you're going to be, if you're going to, really, the four, five, and six, chapters four, five, and six are really about what it might look like in his day. Like, what would he imagine performing this one new humanity would look like? Right? He'd been called to, to live out this one new humanity that God has already made you. Paul doesn't say, tomorrow morning, wake up and see if you can't try to make yourself one new humanity. Now, Paul says God did it. God made you one new humanity. Now act like it. Right? Uh, be that. Be what God made you. And how do you do that? Well, Paul's going to try to help them imagine for what in his day one humanity might look like. And the first thing is humility. If you're going to live with other people and you think about people that are hard to be with. I mean, Jew and Gentile never lived together. There was no instruction book for this. I mean, how are you going to live together? And they never eaten a meal together. They couldn't you know, eat the same stuff. Can you imagine potlucks in the early church? <laughs> the Jews over in one corner mumbling like, did you see what the Gentiles brought? It's only been a thousand years that God told us we couldn't even touch that stuff. We couldn't touch a pot that had that stuff in it. And now you're supposed to sit down and eat with each other. This is going to require a little bit of humility. A little bit of maybe I don't have everything figured out. Maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe, maybe God's doing something bigger than me. So, and it's, it's striking that Paul starts there because he's talking to Gentile people primarily, but they're Jews also. And in the Greek world, humility is not a virtue. It's really important to know that. So the very first thing that Paul <laughs> lifts up for his people to, that's going to be required for them to perform this is something that the Greeks despised. It was weakness. Humility is not a virtue for them. So Paul is lifting up something as a virtue that they need to live out this one humanity, this new humanity. And he's encouraging them to live in such a way that's completely contrary to what they've been taught. It means to be a virtuous person, to flourish as a human being. And so, and the same thing goes with most of the rest of the stuff on this list. This, this is not the kind of virtues that, that the Greeks held up. Right? They're very forward-facing kinds of people and not deferring to anyone. 
They were a proud people, a forceful people, an aggressive people. And so for Paul to say, God has made you one humanity. That's your calling, and you need to live a life worthy of that calling with humility and gentleness and patience. And you need to really bear one another, bear with one another. That, those are the kinds of qualities of life you'll have to have. And they're, they're going to be gifts, they're gifts of the Spirit. I mean, it's not like you have to do this, but you have to be willing to have them cultivated in your life. You have to have, be willing to have them cultivated in your life. You know, this, it's really a matter of having a new identity. You know, to be part of a new humanity, you have to be willing to let, as he'll say in the rest of the chapter, you have to be willing to die to the old humanity and who you thought you were in the old humanity and really have your whole identity reconfigured. This is not, this is not just a minor thing here. I mean, it's a beautiful vision of what God's doing. But Paul wants to be clear, it's going to require something that feels like death to your old way of living. And Paul knows this is the case because, I mean, he's heard enough stories about Jesus. I mean, we often forget that this was going on in, in Jesus' ministry and, and happening in places we often don't think about. Um, I think we may have talked about this before, but it was probably, you know, five or six years ago, and I don't remember it. You probably don't either, so... Um, <coughs> But I was thinking, you know, if you want to look an example in Jesus' inner circle about how Jesus was reconfiguring people's identity and calling them to something new, just think about uh, two of Jesus' disciples, um, unlikely disciples. Um, I mean, if you were, if, you're, if you'd read all the leadership books, you know, in 21st century about, you know, how to choose leaders and how to you know, be a change agent and, you know, how to put together a team of people who will transform the world. Um, tell me that you pick these 12 people. And just, just take two of them. Let's take Matthew. Who remembers who Matthew was? He was a tax collector. And, yeah, we all know who, the, who those folks are. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Jesus is going to pick as one of his closest associates to, trans, to be agents of tr the transformation of the world, bringing in God's new humanity. And you're going to pick Matthew. Everybody loves the IRS guy. Um, but he's not just the IRS guy, you recall, right? If you remember who the tax collectors were in first century Palestine, they were despised not just because they were the tax guy, although they were the tax guy, but you recall that, I mean, the way that they earned their money was, I mean, they just got to tell you what you owed Rome, right? So they just show up at your doorstep and say, you know, well, that's 50 denarii for the year. It's like, well, where's the bill? There's no bill. You're just paying me. 
And like 30 of that's for me and 20 of it's for Rome. The next person is just, it's completely arbitrary. And you, you have no recourse, right? And so it's hard to like that guy. But the worst part is, is Matthew is a Jew working for Rome, collecting taxes on his fellow Jews. So he's a collaborator with the occupying Romans. So the Jewish people are living under Roman occupation and Matthew is a collaborator. Now tell me, tell me, tell me honestly, if you're the God of the universe coming incarnate one time in human history and gathering together a group of people through whom you believe that God is going to change the world, tell me you're picking Matthew. There's probably not a single person around who is despised more than Matthew. He has completely sold his Jewish soul for survival. Okay. Take another guy. Simon. Let's take one of the Simons. There's more than one. Simon Zelotes. Or Simon the Zealot. And we don't know for sure, but there's pretty decent evidence that probably this Simon was part of the sort of nascent early stages of what was, came to be known later as the Zealot Movement. And the Zealots were the people who had just had it up to here with Rome and were not going to take it anymore. And so they engaged in what people who are completely outnumbered uh, by occupying forces often do, and that was they engaged in a kind of guerrilla warfare. I mean, it wasn't like they could, I mean, the Roman Empire was the greatest empire, most powerful empire the world had ever seen. So it wasn't like the Jews were going to say, hey, Rome, we've had enough. Meet us out on the playground, you know, at lunchtime, and we'll take care of this. No. I mean, if Rome wanted to, they could have just leveled and they will, but they could have just leveled Israel in a day. But Simon is likely a zealot, which means, you know, if they happen to, uh, several of them come across a lone Roman soldier walking down um, an alley at night and he didn't make it to breakfast, oh well, those things happen. <laughs> So, so just use your imagination a little bit and imagine what the situation might have been the first time Jesus has lunch at which Matthew and Simon, the zealot, are both present. How do you think that's going to go? I mean, I can, I can sort of ima imagine Matthew... And Simon may be seating across from each other and they're doing introductions. My hunch is Simon already knows who Matthew is. Matthew may not know who Simon is. I imagine Matthew's got a reputation. And I can imagine Simon saying to Jesus, um, Jesus, um, Matthew and I are going to go have a word out back, but no worries. I'll be right back. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Jesus made it possible for people as radically different who had this deep animus hostility between them to somehow make common cause. I mean, that's a miracle. I mean, Matthew had to come to see himself, his identity as something other than a tax collector, other than a, a sellout. And Simon had to come to see himself as something other than the protector of God's honor. They had to fundamentally have, have a, a complete transformation of who they were. And they did, or we wouldn't be here. So this idea of a new humanity is not just a theory. You began to see it working, even in Jesus' day. God was calling people to a new identity, and it meant leaving something very, very fundamental behind. If you're like me, it's, it's one thing to leave something that's sort of incidental to who I am behind. That's hard enough. But we're being called to, to leave something that feels like it's that kind of the center of who I am. It's possible that that might... And that's what Paul's going to get to here. And this echoes this new humanity. It's not just Jew and Gentile, right? You remember in Galatians... Right? That famous passage in chapter 3 of Galatians. As many, this is chapter, uh, verse 27, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And he's going to come back to that image of putting off like an old set of clothes, your old identity, and taking on a new identity, clothing yourself with Christ. Then he goes on to say, there's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean they stopped being Jew or Greek. It doesn't mean they stopped being male or female. It doesn't even mean they stopped being, you know, slave or free. It just means that their identity was not there anymore. That's not where their identity was. It's not who they were. First of all, and now I don't think it's a stretch to say, you know, in our own day, like those were like three critical divisions in Paul's day. But you could take that passage and in any time, in any place in history, you could add to it, right, to give it a little teeth. Right? Like, there's no longer Republican and Democrat. There's no longer conservative and liberal. There's no longer northerner and southerner. There's no longer, I mean, you fill in the blank. Right? It doesn't mean that you stop being those. It just means that's not where your identity is. Right? If you think that's where your identity is, then, then you've missed it, right? You're still living the old humanity. If that's where your fundamental identity is, 
and being a follower of Jesus is just one more thing tacked on like all the other things, then, then you and I have not got this yet. Right? We have not got what God has already done. We're still living the old humanity. Right? So this takes humility. It takes gentleness. It takes patience. It takes bearing with one another because we're made one. These are things you need to live if you're going to... Things we need the Spirit to cultivate us if we're going to actually live out the calling that God has called us to, to be one new humanity. Making every effort, in verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here Paul's doing a wordplay because even though that first verse says prisoner in the Lord, it's really like bond slave. And so he's playing off the word bond here. <laughs> right? He's in, he's in literal bondage in a prison, but you are bound together, bonded by the Spirit, right, in the bond of peace. <clears throat> then he has this litany of seven things. Not coincidentally, we all know that the number seven is this number of completeness. And so he's trying to say, and it's, it's quite possible this is an early confession, an early baptismal creed, we don't really know, but there, this is a carefully constructed list of things that there's just one of. And this is Paul still pleading with them to live this, you know, live a life worthy of this new humanity to which you've been called. Because there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And so God has made us one new humanity, and there's just, right? I mean, there's just one, there's just one body, okay? There's just one body. There's not two bodies of Christ. There's not three bodies of Christ. There's not twelve. There's not a hundred. There's one. And we have been made part of the one body of Christ. We've been made one new humanity. One body. One spirit. Right? There's not three spirits of Jesus. Not a dozen. There's one spirit. We are followers of Jesus. All of our lives, individually and together, are being animated by the same Spirit. The Spirit is making us one body, has made us one body in Christ. Called to one hope of your calling. Right? This calling to be the one humanity. Right? We just have one hope. God has made us one. That's where our hope is. One Lord, right? There's only one Jesus, right? We're all bending the knee to the same Lord. There's not three Lords. There's just one, right? That was powerful language in their day because Caesar thought he was Lord too, right? Um, 
and required to be called Lord. He's not Lord. There's one Lord. This is the Lord. Right? One faith. And here, I don't think Paul's talking about like just doctrine, like one positive faith. I think he's really talking about this one posture of trust that we all have. We all, like he said before, it's we all come to God. We've been made one by God's grace through this act of trust in what God has done. All of us, right? All of us have been embraced by God and our response is to trust what God has done. We call that faith. There's just one faith, one baptism. Right? We've all, there's not, again, there's just one baptism in Jesus. Um, and we've all undergone that. And one, finally, the finally last one, the one God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and end all. So, we're just one. But it doesn't mean that we're all the same thing. And, you know, he next shifts to talk about that, that God has given different kinds of gifts. And this is one of the reasons we need things like humility and gentleness and patience is because we're different. Um, we're he, other places, right? He talks about the body having different kinds of body parts. And we're not, we're not all the same person. No, unity does not mean uniformity. Um, Unity means taking things that are different and bringing them into harmony. When the early church tried to think about this, we've talked about this before too. You know, the great Saint Augustine, the great church father, went to music to look for what he thought was this, the most powerful analogy for how do you have unity and difference? Well, music. I mean, harmony wouldn't be harmony if it was the same note. Right? But they go together in a beautiful way. Now you can have dissonance. You can have different notes and they not go together. <laughs> right? But harmony is, is unity with difference. Unity of difference. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the unity of the Spirit, but we're not. There's nothing that's uniform. We're not asking for everyone, every Christian, to be a cookie cutter of every other. It's not what this requires. And so he's, he, he sort of lays out the different kinds of leaders, for example, that God has brought into being in this new humanity. And so, say at verse 11, and, and just for those of you who are worried, we're going to try to get through all of it today. So if you're thinking, he's never going to get to the end of chapter 4. I should have said that early so you wouldn't get anxious. Those of you who are anxious people. Um, yeah. We're not going to try. I know we tried to do most of the verses in 1 through 3, but 4 through 6, we're not going to try to do every verse because... Each one could be unpacked in a whole lesson. So we're just going to try to see what's he talking about here. How does what comes in 4, 5, and 6 follow from the first three chapters? So here he talks in verse 11. The gifts, again, they're gifts. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. But why? Why did he give them gifts? 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, that one body, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. And so that's why God gave us a diversity of different kinds of leaders. Now, there are different kinds of gifts. This, this list, most of you who know Romans and Corinthians know that Paul has lists of gifts in those places too that are, that are more exhaustive. Not exhaustive, but more comprehensive. Uh, he's not trying to say these are the only gifts that the Spirit gives. He's talking about the ones that are what we would call uh, sort of leadership gifts. But those, again, are not so that that person can be exalted as a leader. Far from it. Um, and it's certainly not so uh, these are the, the people who do ministry, which is what sometimes we've mistakenly done in our day. Right? The pastor becomes the CEO in a lot of people's minds, not the pastor's mind, but in a lot of the people's mind. Right? Trust me, I don't, I've hardly met a pastor yet who wants to be a CEO of the church. Um, they're, they're called, right? Leaders are called to equip the body for ministry. Right? To equip the body for ministry. Um, and it takes different kinds of people to do that. It takes different kinds of people to do that. But the point is, the goal is, the purpose is the building up of the body of Christ. So we come to the unity of the faith and to maturity, to the measure of the full statue of Christ. I mean, just meditate on that phrase this week. What would it mean for us together to allow the Spirit to work in our lives so that we would move towards maturity to the measure of the full statue, stature of Christ? This is God's desire for us. Um, I was thinking this week how many times when children are, are young, even when they're young, we ask them like, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? And uh, it's always fun to see children's answers to that shift. Um, always get worried when you have like a three-year-old who says, I want to be an orthodontist. <laughs> really? <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> Tell me a story there, right? Um, like, what happened to me like a farmer or a fireman or something. I don't know. Yeah. Nothing about being more than honest. It just seems strange. But Paul, here's Paul saying, let me tell you what you want to be when you grow up. Let me tell you what you want to be. What you ought to want to be when you grow up. God wants you to grow up into the full stature of Christ. Again, not just you individually, like us together. Um, that's God's vision for us. And that's, that's every bit as glorious as what's in chapters 1 through 3. If you, if you begin to catch, that's what God wants for us. 
to grow up into the full measure. That's real maturity. That's really growing up. And I have to admit, it's really easy just to remain a kid. Right? Just to remain a kid. And not have to grow up. Right? Just to live in Neverland where you don't have to grow up. You can just stay a kid. No. That's not God's vision for us. God wants us to grow up into the full measure of Christ. And in the circular letter that he's sending out, he's trying to give them encouragement about how that might look in their day. It's probably going to look different in our day. I think we can learn from a lot of what Paul says here. Absolutely. But what living in our day the challenges our day, just like what are the divisions in our day are somewhat di different than the divisions in his day. Most of you, most of your life have not been overly animated by the division between Jew and Greek. I mean, it just hasn't sort of tortured you, right? Um, for Paul, I mean, that is the division. There's hardly a letter Paul writes where that isn't at the forefront of everything he's doing. Because in his mind, that, that was the sort of shocker. I mean, that was just revolutionary what God was doing in bringing Jew and Gentile together. In his mind, if God can bring Jew and Gentile together, then there, can't, there can only be one new, one new humanity. Because that was, in his world, the most fundamental division there could be. Um, and so... You know, when he gets to the, the end of this chapter, you know, he's talking about, you know, putting away the old, putting on the new. And here he's imagining, here's he's probably the very literal, uh, some of you know in the, in the baptismal literally, baptismal liturgy early on, I mean, it was quite common to actually uh, take the candidate for baptism, strip them naked, right? to literally think about taking off the old humanity, the old person, you would be baptized in the all together, and then you would be clothed, right? You'd receive a new, white, pristine garment to be put on afterwards. And you were often given a new name, right? You're often given a new name. Talk about change of identity. The old has been left behind. You died in baptism to your old self. The old humanity is gone. And now you're called to live in the new humanity. We're even going to give you a new name. Just to remind you. God is doing something revolutionary here. Right. For most of us, there's, I said, you know, being part of the new humanity might require us to leave what feels like pretty essential parts of us behind. Most of us are pretty attached to our names, right? It'd be hard for me to wake up tomorrow morning and not be Phil or Philip, right? Somebody says, no, your name's Barnabas now. <laughs> okay. I mean, it would take me a while to live into that, right? But there's something beautiful about that. And again, I want you to catch 
even though Paul's starting to talk about moral ad admonition, talking about you know, what we're going to have to leave behind, and I'm sorry we didn't get to the part about, you know, be angry but sin not, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. So Paul's not encouraging us to be angry. It's sort of like, you know, if you're angry, okay, that's a human emotion. Just don't sin in that. And then don't stew over it, which is what most of us do. Don't cultivate it into bitterness and wrangling. And he's got this whole list later about that, what happens when you just kind of hold on to these little petty resentments and just let them grow. He says, no, just let it go. Don't let the sun go down on that. And he's just, he's given them sort of encouragement about what it's going to mean real life and every day to live with people who are different than you are. Recognizing that we're one new humanity. God has made us that in Christ and we got, you know, with the Spirit's help, we have to open ourselves up to living that. And then when he gets to the beginning of chapter 5, just the last thing to sort of stop you in your tracks, um, he says something really modest. Talk about humility. God in Christ has been gracious to you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Live in love as Christ loved us. Be imitators of God. Now there's a low bar. <laughs> Be imitators of God. Right. Um, love has Christ. God was gracious to you. Be gracious to one another. God forgave you. Forgive one another. God loved you in Christ. Love one another. God, God's already shown you what this looks like. God has made you one new humanity. By God's grace, by God's power, live that. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, unbounded love, we give you thanks for what you have done in Christ. We give you thanks that you have made us one new humanity. Uh, we confess that we often don't feel like one new humanity. So we would give, we pray that by your spirit you might give us a vision to see what you have made us. And by your spirit you might give us the courage and the will to be what you have made us. May we not find that burdensome. May it be great joy. And may you make of us a people, a people who are a glory to your name. For your glory, not for ours, that we might bear witness to the world of your desires for all that you have made. We pray this through the one in whom you have made us one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.